In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. 25 years ago, the movie Clueless hit the big screen. Perhaps you missed the craze of the film, but if you pay any attention to popular culture at all, you'll realize the way the film has touched your life. The movie is set in a Beverly Hills high school where shallow popularity and superficial life are the stars of the show. As the teenagers in the movie rode the ups and downs of adolescent life, they introduced to the world a vocabulary peppered with words such as, as if, like, and whatever, in one popular debate or particular debate scene, one of the characters responds to a nonsensical argument related to immigration and refugee policy saying, whatever. For those of you not yet 30 years old and therefore not as acquainted with this movie, you may still be familiar with whatever used in this way. You've heard it from a disgruntled peer or maybe a coworker or on your favorite sitcom rerun. Maybe you've seen that fantastic gif of the little girl rolling her eyes and waving her hand, whatever, whatever, as a dismissive eye-rolling catchphrase has its roots at least in the 1960s, if not before. But it has had such staying power that even by 2010, it was voted the most annoying word in our vernacular two years running, whatever. I, for one, find this word near the tip of my tongue a lot these days. It's there when I watch the news. It's close by when I hear arguments from political candidates and watch their corresponding ad campaigns. The, words near, the word near my lips as I scroll Facebook and Twitter and notice the nonsensical, seemingly illogical arguments people make defending one thing or another, whatever. As Wikipedia says in its article about the word whatever, yes, there is a Wikipedia article about it. It is regularly used as a passive-aggressive conversational blocking tool, leaving the responder without a convincing retort. Whatever shuts down a conversation. So when my frustration, anger, rage, despair, hopelessness, or disgust about the way our world is hits the point of disengagement, whatever so easily comes out. I wonder if that's the case for you as well. Whatever is also at the tip of Paul's pen as he writes his final farewell to the church at Philippi. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul has been encouraging the church in the ways of unity in Jesus. And while this church is not yet perfect, Paul is overall very pleased with them. In fact, one of the overarching themes of the letter is joy, Paul's joy and the people's joy in Jesus. Even though he writes this letter from prison, he is nevertheless joyful and he encourages the church to rejoice in the Lord always, to not worry about anything, and to let their gentle generosity be made known to all. 
So as he wraps up his words of encouragement and calling, Paul concludes saying, whatever. Finally, whatever. But Paul's whatever is not a dismissive approach to the things about which he has just written. And it's not a way of shutting down the conversation. Instead, whatever is a focusing adverb for Paul. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. One of the last things that Paul wants to share with these beloved fellow followers of Christ is for them to turn their minds to these whatevers. Think about these whatevers. These whatevers are signs of God's good work and reality in the world. They don't merely point to themselves, they point beyond themselves to the God who inspires things that are true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Don't dismiss these things. Don't disregard them. Don't ignore them or act like they don't matter. Think on them. Because they lead you to the God who is at the very root of them. The word Paul uses here for think about is a word that in other places is translated as reckon or take an accounting of. Paul encourages the church to take a real accounting, make a thorough study of things that are true, honorable, just, pure, and so on. This is not simply about noticing these things, though that's an important first step. What these early followers of Christ are called to do is focus their attention whenever and wherever they see things that are commendable, pleasing, excellent, and worthy of praise. Focusing like this requires disciplined reckoning, joyful accounting, grateful inventory taking, and peace filled calculating of these whatevers that ultimately point beyond themselves to Jesus. In a world so full of distractions, we are called, like the early Christians, to focus on what is good and right and true. That is, to focus on the things that point us to Christ. Of course, this may be easier said than done for us today. Sure, the early church was dealing with persecution and potential death for their faith, but we have to deal with political ads, text messages, nonstop email, and constant notifications related to all our social media platforms. Perhaps your Google notifications are actually set to only feed you information that is true, honorable, and just, but you would be in a rare category if that's the case. You know that we live in a world inundated by constant distractions and countless interruptions that are always demanding our attention, be they good, bad, or indifferent. Our brains haven't really developed well to deal with all of the distractions of our modern lives. 
So we know well how challenging it is to have a deep and thorough focus on anything, let alone on those things which are excellent and worthy of praise. Things like this do not get much airtime or advertising in our daily lives. The endless examples of things to fear and anxieties to have are much more likely in front of us. And because our various media sources, the advertisements we see, and the news services we use so rarely lift up what is pure and pleasing and commendable, especially during an election season, we struggle to set our minds on these very things. Neuroscientists who study the ways we deal with distractions and how we focus have been studying the brain to understand the effects of the demands of our world and the endless distractions of our modern lives. Dr. Adam Ghazali talks about how our brain has a sensitivity to distractions both internal and external. In his research, he has studied how stimuli internally and from the world around us has the potential to shift our focus away from those things we strive to give our devoted attention to. Those who are able consistently to avoid distraction and maintain attention most successfully have two things that work well for them. First, as you might expect, they are able to focus on one thing that is the most important to them and hold it in their mind's eye without losing sight of it for an extended period of time. But second, and equally importantly, they are able to successfully ignore those things that would distract them from that which they desire to give their attention to. Because of this, Dr. Ghazali recommends that any tasks that demand high quality or deep focus should be done one task at a time. This is why you shouldn't text and drive. Set aside those things that so easily distract us and zero in on what matters. So this morning, let's take the guidance of neuroscience and Paul's calling to the church hand in hand. In order, in order for us to thoroughly set our minds on Paul's whatever list, we must also set aside the distractions, say whatever, so to speak, to those things that interrupt our focus on that which is good. I wonder what these distractions are for you. What keeps you from taking a detailed inventory of that which is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, and commendable? What stands in the way of you giving your full attention to that which is excellent and worthy of praise? Perhaps your distractions come in the form of binging shows on Netflix, Hulu, or Disney+. Of course, there are things that are excellent and worthy of praise in the entertainment industry, but not all. And perhaps what you regular, regularly choose distracts you from what you would rather be focusing on. Maybe your distractions come on your phone through Insta posts or Snapchats or tweets. And while these occasionally lift up what is good and just and true, perhaps they don't often draw you into a thorough examination of what is excellent and worthy of praise. 
Maybe your distractions come in the form of following the news, and especially the twists and turns of the political races. And while engagement in the governance of this community and the country is a privilege and a social duty, perhaps you recognize how these things have turned your attention away from what is just and pure and pleasing. There are so many more. An endless number of things that could keep us from setting our minds on the things that are good and true and ultimately from setting our minds on the Christ to whom those things point. You know what they are for you. The calling for us today is to set these things aside, at least occasionally to give our minds the space they need to focus on seeing the good that points to God's peace-producing presence in our world. But eliminating distractions is only part of the equation. The other is setting our minds on the good. So where do you turn to set your mind on the good? Paul says, whatever is. He casts the net wide for where we might find things that are honorable, true, pleasing, pure, and excellent. There is no room for a limited, limited imagination of where the goodness that points to God might, in fact, show up. Things that are excellent and worthy of praise are not limited by race, language, religion, location, or whom somebody loves. They are not bound by the isms of our world. They are not confined to hymnals, catechisms, creeds, or even the Bible. All creation and all things within creation have the potential to point us to the praiseworthy and to press us to ponder that which is pure. So as we take a thorough accounting, as we set our minds on Paul's whatevers, we should do so expecting to be surprised by what we notice and where we notice it. I suspect you have your go-to spaces, those places where you readily see and give your attention to what is good and true, pure and just, Maybe your space is during times of corporate worship or youth group Bible studies or Saturday morning prayers for racial healing. Perhaps it's in reading a psalm, singing a favorite praise and worship song, or digging into a theological masterpiece. For you, it could be examining the intricacies of a plant cell, analyzing algorithms, or pondering ancient philosophies. Maybe it's in viewing the splendor of mountains, the beach, or a cityscape. Perhaps it's in perceiving a painting of Picasso, reading a poem by Elizabeth Alexander, sipping a perfectly roasted cup of counterculture coffee, or listening to jazz by Billie Holiday. Maybe it's simply standing before a class of students or marching alongside others who are seeking freedom. 
In these things and others like them, you are able to notice and focus your attention on what is excellent and worthy of praise. And in giving your mind to these things, you experience the joy and peace that comes in noticing God's presence because all that is true, just, pure, honorable, excellent, and worthy of praise ultimately points beyond itself to the God who in Christ came to be with us. Even as we consider where we go to see these whatevers, we must pause for a moment to remember an implicit lesson from the scripture today. Paul tells the Philippians to set their minds on things that are good, but he does not tell them to ignore the world around them or pretend there is nothing wrong, unjust, or otherwise bad. He is not a stoic encouraging people to be neutral toward all things. Paul writes as a prisoner to a church under the threat of persecution, and he doesn't ask them to act like that that is not the case. Instead, he points them toward the resource for hope, joy, and peace present right in the middle of suffering and pain and challenge. He tells the church then and now to look to Jesus to set our minds on the one who suffered the injustice and pain of death on a criminal's cross. To paraphrase Dean Powery in his discussion on hope this past week, hope rises out of our hurts. Resurrection comes through death. Christ's presence is found precisely at the point of pain. So setting our minds on things worthy of praise does not mean burying our heads in the sand of an imaginary utopian beach. No, it means focusing on the Messiah in the middle of our messes. Bobby McFerrin found a way to do this in his music making. McFerrin found what is true and honorable and pleasing as he read the scriptures and considered the love and care of his mother. He also was aware of how the brokenness and mess of the world around him had harmed singers within his choir, especially as it came to their ability to focus on and praise God. He knew how patriarchal aspects of the Bible at times prevented his singers from feeling included in God's gathered community. So McFerrin created an adaptation of one of the most popular psalms, Psalm 23. In it, he uses feminine words and pronouns for God, and he adds in the idea of the good shepherd righting our wrongs in a way that eventually produces in us a song. In doing this, McFerrin lifts for singers and those who listen a new way of setting our minds on that which is true, honorable, commendable, and worthy of praise. McFerrin helps us to focus on the Messiah in the middle of our mess. Friends, as we listen now to McFerrin's piece, I say to you, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.